Chapter Twenty of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Twenty. A perfect woman, nobly planned, to warn, to comfort, and command, and yet a spirit still and bright, with something of an angel light. Wordsworth. It was the twilight of a sultry September day, and wearied with many hours' endurance of an excessive heat. Unlooked for so late in the season, Emily Graham sat on the front piazza of her father's house, inhaling a delicious and refreshing breeze which had just sprung up. The western sky was still streaked with brilliant lines of red, the lingering effects of a gorgeous sunset, while the moon, now nearly at the full, and triumphing in the close of the day and the commencement of her nightly reign, cast her full beams upon Emily's white dress, and gave to the beautiful hand and arm. Which, escaping from the drapered sleeve, rested on the side of her rustic armchair, the semblance of polished marble. Ten years had passed since Emily was first introduced to the reader, and yet so slight were the changes wrought by time upon her face and figure, that she looked scarcely any older than on the occasion of her first meeting Gertrude in Mr. Arnold's church. She had even then experienced much of the sorrow of life. And learned how to distill from the bitter dregs of suffering a balm for every pain. Even then, that experience and the blessed knowledge she had gained from it had both stamped themselves upon her countenance. The one in a sobered and subdued expression, which usually belongs to more mature years; the other in that sweet, calm smile of trust and hope, which proclaims the votary of heaven. Therefore, time had little power upon her. And as she was then, so she was now, lovely in her outward appearance, and still more lovely in heart and life. A close observer might, however, perceive in her a greater degree of buoyancy of spirit, keenness of interest in what was going on about her, and evident enjoyment of life than she had formerly evinced. And this was due, as Emily felt and acknowledged, to her recent close companionship with one to whom she was bound by the warmest affection. And who, by her lively sympathy, her constant devotion, her natural appreciation of the entertaining and the ludicrous, as well as the beautiful and the true, and her earnest and unsparing efforts to bring her much-loved friend into communion with everything she herself enjoyed, had called into play faculties which blindness had rendered almost dormant, and become what Uncle True bade her to be—eyes to her benefactor. On the present occasion, however, as Emily sat alone, shut out from the beautiful sunset, and unconscious of the shadows that played over her in the moonlight, her thoughts seemed to be sad. She held her head a little on one side, in a listening attitude, and as often as she heard the sound of the gate swinging in the breeze, she would start, while a look of anxiety and even pain would cross her features. At length, someone emerges from behind the high fence which screens the garden from public gaze and approaches the gate. None but Emily's quick ear could have distinguished the light step, but she hears it at once, and rising goes to meet the newcomer, whom we must pause to introduce, for though an old acquaintance, time has not left her unchanged, and it would be hard to recognize in her our little quondam Gertrude. The present Gertrude, for she it is, has now become a young lady. She is some inches taller than Emily, and her figure is slight and delicate. Her complexion is dark but clear, and rendered brilliant by the rosy hue that flushes her cheeks. But that may be the effect of her rapid walk from the railroad station. 
She has taken off her bonnet, and is swinging it by the string. A habit she always had as a child. So we will acquit her of any coquettish desire to display an unusually fine head of hair. Gertrude's eyes have retained their old luster, and do not now look too large for her face. And, if her mouth be less classically formed than the strict rule of beauty would commend, one can easily forgive that, in consideration of two rows of small pearly teeth, which are as regular and even as a string of beads. Her neat dress of spotted muslin fits close to her throat, and her simple black mantle does not conceal the roundness of her taper waist. What, then, is Gertrude a beauty? By no means. Hers is a face and form about which there would be a thousand different opinions, and out of the whole number few would pronounce her beautiful. But there are faces whose ever-varying expression one loves to watch. Tell-tale faces, that speak the truth and proclaim the sentiment within. Faces that now light up with intelligence, now beam with mirth, now sadden at the tale of sorrow, now burn with a holy indignation for that which the soul abhors, and now, again, are sanctified by the divine presence, when the heart turns away from the world and itself, and looks upward in the spirit of devotion. Such a face was Gertrude's. There are forms, too, which, though neither dignified, queenly, or fairy-like, possess a grace, an ease, a self-possession, a power of moving lightly and airily in their sphere, and never being in any one's way. And such a form was Gertrude's. Whatever charm these attractions might give her, and there were those who estimated it highly, it was undoubtedly greatly enhanced by an utter unconsciousness, on her part, of possessing any attractions at all. The early engrafted belief in her own personal plainness had not yet deserted her, but she no longer felt the mortification she had formerly labored under on that account. As she perceived Miss Graham coming to meet her, she quickened her pace, and joining her near the doorstep, where a path turning to the right led into the garden, passed her arm affectionately over Emily's shoulder, in a manner which the latter's blindness, and Gertrude's superior height and ability to act as guide, had of late rendered usual, and turning into the walk which led from the house, said, while she drew the shawl closer around her blind friend, "'Here I am, Emily. Have you been alone ever since I went away?' "'Yes, dear, most of the time.' and have been quite worried to think you were travelling about in Boston this excessively warm day. It has not hurt me in the least. I only enjoy this cool breeze all the more. It is such a contrast to the heat and dust of the city. But, Gertie, said Emily, stopping short in their walk, what are you coming away from the house for? You have not been to tea, my child. I know it, Emily, but I don't want any supper. They walked on for some time, slowly and in perfect silence. At last Emily said, "'Well, Gertrude, have you nothing to tell me?' "'Oh, yes, a great deal, but—' "'But you know it will be sad news to me, and so you don't like to speak it. Is it not so?' "'I ought not to have the vanity, dear Emily, to think it would trouble you very much. But ever since last evening, when I told you what Mr. W. said, and what I had in my mind, and you seemed to feel so badly at the thought of our being separated— I have felt almost doubtful what it was right for me to do. And I, on the other hand, Gertrude, have been reproaching myself for allowing you to have any knowledge of my feeling in the matter, lest I should be influencing you against your duty, or at least making it harder for you to fulfill. I feel that you are right, Gertrude, and that, instead of opposing, I ought to do everything I can to forward your plans. Dear Emily, exclaimed Gertrude vehemently, 
if you thought so from what I told you yesterday, you would be convinced, had you seen and heard all that I have today. Why, are matters any worse than they were at Mrs. Sullivan's? Much worse than I described to you. I did not then know myself all that Mrs. Sullivan had to contend with, but I have been at their house nearly all the time since I left home this morning, for Mr. W. did not detain me five minutes. And it really does not seem to me safe for such a timid, delicate woman as Mrs. Sullivan to be alone with Mr. Cooper, now that his mind is in such a dreadful state. But do you think you can do any good, Gertrude? I know I can, dear Emily. I can manage him much better than she can, and at the same time do more for his comfort and happiness. He is like a child now, and full of whims. When he can possibly be indulged, Mrs. Sullivan will please him at any amount of inconvenience, and even danger to herself, not only because he is her father, and she feels it her duty, but I actually think she is afraid of him. He is so irritable and violent." She tells me he often takes it into his head to do the strangest things, such as going out late at night, when it would be perfectly unsafe, and sleeping with his window wide open, though his room is on the lower floor. "'Poor woman!' exclaimed Emily. "'What does she do in such cases?' "'I can tell you, Emily, for I saw an instance of it to-day. When I first went in this morning, he was preparing to make a coal fire in the grate, notwithstanding the heat, which was becoming intense in the city.' "'And Mrs. Sullivan,' said Emily, "'was sitting on the lower stair, in the front entry, crying.' "'Poor thing,' murmured Emily. "'She could do nothing with him,' continued Gertrude, "'and had given up in despair. "'She ought to have a strong woman, or a man, to take care of him. "'That is what she dreads more than anything. "'She says it would kill her to see him unkindly treated, "'as he would be sure to be by a stranger.' And besides, I can see that she shrinks from the idea of having any one in the house to whom she is unaccustomed. She is exceedingly neat and particular in all her arrangements, has always done her work herself, and declares she would sooner admit a wild beast into her family than an Irish girl. Her new house has not been a source of much pleasure to her yet, has it? Oh, no, she was saying to-day how strange it seemed, when she had been looking forward so long to the comfort of a new and well-built tenement that just as she had moved in and got everything furnished to her mind, she should have this great trial come upon her. It seems strange to me, said Emily, that she did not sooner perceive its approach. I noticed, when I went with you to the house in E Street, the failure in the old man's intellect. I had observed it for a long time, remarked Gertrude, but never spoke of it to her, and I do not think she was in the least aware of it until about the time of their removal, when the breaking up of old associations had a sad effect upon poor Mr. Cooper. Don't you think, Gertrude, that the pulling down of the church, and his consequent loss of employment, were a great injury to his mind? Yes, indeed, I am sure of it. He altered very much after that, and never seemed so happy, even while they were in the house in East Street, and when the owners of that land concluded to take it for stores and warehouses, and gave Mrs. Sullivan notice that she would be obliged to leave, the old sexton's mind gave way entirely. "'Sad thing,' said Emily. "'How old is he, Gertrude?' "'I don't know exactly, but I believe he is very old. I remember Mrs. Sullivan's telling me, some time ago, that he was near eighty. "'Is he so old as that? Then I am not surprised that these changes have made him childish.' Oh, no, melancholy as it is, it is no more than we may any of us come to, if we live to his age. 
and as he seems for the most part full as contented and happy as I have ever seen him appear, I do not lament it so much on his own account as on Mrs. Sullivan's. But I do, Emily, feel dreadfully anxious about her. Does it seem to be so very hard for her to bear up under it? I think it would not be if she were well, but there is something the matter with her, and I fear it is more serious than she allows, for she looks very pale, and has, I know, had several alarming ill turns lately. Has she consulted a physician? No, she doesn't wish for one, and insists upon it she shall soon be better, but I do not feel sure that she will, especially as she takes no care of herself, and that is one great reason for my wishing to be in town as soon as possible. I am anxious to have Dr. Jeremy see her, and I think I can bring it about without her knowing that he comes on her account. I'll have a severe cold myself if I can't manage it any other way. You speak confidently of being in town, Gertrude, so I suppose it is all arranged. Oh, I have not told you, have I, about my visit to Mr. W. Dear good man, how grateful I ought to be to him. He has promised me the situation. I had no doubt he would, from what you told me he said to you at Mrs. Bruce's. You hadn't, really? Why, Emily, I was almost afraid to mention it to him. I couldn't believe he would have sufficient confidence in me, but he was so kind. I hardly dare tell you what he said about my capacity to teach. You will think me so vain. You need not tell me, my darling. I know from his own lips how highly he appreciates your ability. You could not tell me anything so flattering as what he told me himself. Dear Uncle True always wanted me to be a teacher. It was the height of his ambition. He would be pleased, wouldn't he, dear Emily? He would no doubt have been proud enough to see you assistant in a school like Mr. W.'s. I am not sure, however, but he would think, as I do, that you are undertaking too much. You expect to be occupied in the school the greater part of every morning, and yet you propose to establish yourself as nurse to Mrs. Sullivan, and guardian to her poor old father. My dear child, you are not used to so much care, and I shall be constantly troubled for you, lest your own health and strength give way. Oh, dear Emily, there is no occasion for any anxiety on my account. I am well and strong, and fully capable of all that I have planned for myself. My only dread is in the thought of leaving you, and the only fear I have is that you will miss me, and perhaps feel as if— I know what you would say, Gertrude. You need not fear that. I am sure of your affection. I am confident you love me next to your duty, and I would not for the world that you should give me the preference. So dismiss that thought from your mind, and do not carry with you the belief that I would be selfish enough to desire to retain you a moment. I only wish, my dear, that for the present you had not thought of entering the school. You might then have gone to Mrs. Sullivan's, stayed as long as you were needed, and perhaps found, by the time we are ready to start on our southern tour, that your services could be quite dispensed with, in which case you could accompany us on a journey, which I am sure your health will by that time require. But, dear Emily, how could I do that? I could not propose myself as a visitor to Mrs. Sullivan, however useful I might intend to be to her, nor could I speak of nursing to a woman who will not acknowledge that she is ill. I thought of all that, and it seemed to me impossible, with all the delicacy and tact in the world, to bring it about. For I have been with you so long, that Mrs. Sullivan, I have no doubt, thinks me entirely unfitted for her primitive way of life. It was only when Mr. W. spoke of his wanting an assistant, and, as I imagined, hinted that he should like to employ me in that capacity, that the present plan occurred to me. 
I knew, if I told Mrs. Sullivan that I was engaged to teach there, and that you were not coming to town at all, but were soon going south, and represented to her that I wanted a boarding-place for the winter, she would not only be loath to refuse me a home with her, but would insist that I should go nowhere else. And it proved as you expected? Exactly, and she showed so much pleasure at the thought of my being with her, that I realized still more how much she needed someone. She will have a treasure in you, Gertrude. I know that very well. No, indeed, I do not hope to be of much use. The feeling I have is that however little I may be able to accomplish, it will be more than anyone else could do for Mrs. Sullivan. She has lived so retired that she has not an intimate friend in the city, and I do not really know of anyone, except myself, whom she would willingly admit under her roof. She is used to me, and loves me, and I am no restraint upon her, and she allows me to assist in whatever she is doing, although she often says that I live a lady's life now, and am not used to work. She knows, too, that I have an influence over her father, and I have, strange as it may seem to you, I have more than I know how to account for myself. I think it is partly because I am not at all afraid of him, and am firm in opposing his unreasonable fancies, and partly because I am more of a stranger than Mrs. Sullivan. But there is still another thing which gives me a great control over him. He naturally associates me in his mind with Willie, for we were for some years constantly together, both left the house at the same time, and he knows, too, that it is through me that the correspondence with him is chiefly carried on. Since his mind has been so weak, he seems to think continually of Willie, and I can at any moment, however irritable or willful he may be, make him calm and quiet by proposing to tell him the latest news from his grandson. It does not matter how often I repeat the contents of the last letter. It is always new to him. And you have no idea, Emily, what power this little circumstance gives me. Mrs. Sullivan sees how easily I can guide his thoughts, and I noticed what a load of care seemed to be taken from her mind by merely having me there to-day. She looked so happy when I came away to-night, and spoke so hopefully of the comfort it would be during the winter to have me with her, that I felt repaid for any sacrifice it has been to me. But when I came home, and saw you, and thought of your going so far away, and of the length of time it might be before I should live with you again, I felt as if— Gertrude could say no more. She laid her head on Emily's shoulder and wept. Emily soothed her with the greatest tenderness. "'We have been very happy together, Gertie,' said she, "'and I shall miss you sadly. Half of the enjoyment of my life has of late years been borrowed from you. But I never loved you half so well as I do now, at the very time that we must part. For I see in the sacrifice you are making of yourself one of the noblest and most important traits of character a woman can possess.' I know how much you love the Sullivans, and you have certainly every reason for being attached to them, and desiring to repay your old obligations. But you are leaving us at this time, and renouncing, without a murmur, the southern tour from which you expected so much pleasure, proves that my Gertie is the brave, good girl I always hoped and prayed she might become. You are in the path of duty, Gertrude, and will be rewarded by the approbation of your own conscience, if in no other way." As Emily finished speaking, they reached a corner of the garden, and were here met by a servant-girl, who had been looking for them to announce that Mrs. Bruce and her son were in the parlour, and had asked for them both. "'Did you get her buttons in town, Gertrude?' inquired Emily. "'Yes. I found some that were an excellent match for the dress. She probably wants to know what success I had. But how can I go in?' 
I will return to the house with Katie, and you can go in at the side door, and reach your own room without being seen. I will excuse you to Mrs. Bruce for the present, and when you have bathed your eyes and feel composed, you can come in and report concerning the errand she entrusted to you. End of chapter 20